Mark chapter 15, verse 1 to verse 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to list to you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that he was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stared up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they all shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scared Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now, this past week, uh, a group of um, 150 writers, uh, academics, uh, and activists, they signed uh, an open letter. You may have seen this in the news. They signed an open letter denouncing something called the cancel culture. Now, Brother Michael is probably wondering, what is that? What is the cancel culture? Well, the cancel culture is a new trend in our society where people ashamed and condemned, especially on social media, for something they have said or done. You just say something and somebody immediately is there taking offense, right? That's a big part. And they immediately organize others and they start condemning you. So the cancel culture has in fact led to people losing their jobs. It has led to some receiving death threats. It has led to authors who've written works being boycotted of those works. It has left businesses, some of them, even going out of business unless they change their behavior. And of course, we're seeing the cancer culture, particularly in the removal of statues and other things in our society. The cancer culture, as in cancel, not the council down the road, right? The cancer culture, where you are canceled, is a new world where there is only condemnation and no forgiveness or grace. It is a culture where people are always offended. Now, most of the time, the public shaming and condemnation happens before the facts are even known, right? People are eager, very eager, to punish anyone they disagree with. Perhaps the most famous example of this cancel culture is what happened to the Love Island presenter, Caroline Flack, who died only in February this year. It seems like a long time ago now, doesn't it? Before Caroline was charged by the police with assault, 
uh, the social media had already found the guilty. And from that moment they found the guilty, our life fell apart. Here is what Caroline wrote just before she tragically ended her life. She said this, My family can't take it anymore. I've lost my job, my home, my ability to speak the truth. The truth has been taken out of my hands and used as entertainment. As I thought about this cancer culture, it, it came to my mind that the cancer culture reveals something about human beings. All of us love to sit in the judge's chair. That's why we love programs like Jerry Springer and Judge Rinda. We love just being in the judge's chair to try people, condemn them, and punish people around us that we don't agree with. Now, the question is, why are we like that? Well, I think it's because all of us, at the core of our being, we often think other people are worse than us. I think that's why. I think at the core of us, we think we are good, innocent, and decent people. And by and large, that's what we think about ourselves, but other people, of course, are not. Now, it is true that there are people who do worse things than us. Of course it is. You are not Adolf Hitler. You are not, uh, you are not Abu Hamza, right? It, that is true. But then we must ask ourselves, when we compare ourselves to others, we must ask ourselves, by what standard? By what standard are you better than others? Now, we cannot use human standards to compare ourselves to other people because one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter, as you know, right? So the only standard for judging who deserves to be condemned or praised is God's objective moral standard which has been revealed to us in the Bible. We need an external standard, and God has revealed that external standard. And when we open the Bible, we find something very, very shocking. It says, in fact, that all of us have fallen below God's moral standard. That's what the Bible says. Uh, Psalm 14, verse 2 to 3 says this. In Psalm 14, verse 2 to 3, it says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man, that's all of us, to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. And then the Bible goes on to say, there is none who does good. Not even one. In other words, everyone deserves to be cancelled by God. Romans, 12, Romans 3 verse 23 says this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So that's God's assessment of us. Is that all of us have fallen below his glory. What is the glory of God? Well, the glory of God is who God is. It is his beauty. His majesty. It is his goodness. Right? And the Bible is saying in Romans 3 verse 23 that none of us treat God with the glory that he deserves to be treated. The Bible is saying that all of us are sinners. Why? Because all of us live only for our glory. We live only for looking after number one, ourselves. Most of the things we do is about us rather than about God. So all of us have fallen short of God's moral standard. 
And in other words, all of us are now guilty before God. And the Bible says that the, the penalty, the, 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 the consequence of that, of our guilt, is that we are all of us under everlasting condemnation and headed for hell. That's just a default of everyone who's born. Romans 1 verse 18 to 21 says this. For the wrath, we could say, or the punishment of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and women who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What's the problem? Well, verse 19 tells us, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. In other words, God has revealed himself and his moral standard. Verse 20 says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that it has been made. So, that, so they are without excuse. In other words, all of us know who God is. We all know his moral standard and we have all fallen short of that standard. You might say God has legitimately cancelled us. Because a day is coming, you see, when we will be publicly shamed and punished by God for rejecting him. When I think about the cancel culture in our time, uh, I immediately realize that, you see, as terrible as the cancel culture is, what should concern us more is our permanent cancellation by God because of our sin against him. You and I can do without our day jobs. We can. We can do without them. We can do without friends. We can even do without statues in public places. We can. But we cannot do without God. Because you see, God is the best friend, but the worst enemy. To have God is to have everything we long for. To reject God, not to live for him, is to suffer eternal torment by God himself. He is the best friend but the worst enemy to have. So the most important question in life is this. All of life comes down to this simple question. How can we be declared innocent by God so that we don't suffer everlasting condemnation? And the good news of the Bible is that God our judge has come in the person of Jesus to suffer condemnation in our place. God is the judge. We are the spiritual criminals. We cannot declare ourselves innocent before God. We need the judge to intervene on our behalf. And the Bible says God has done that. He has come in Christ to suffer cancellation, you might say. To be cancelled in our place. To be condemned in our place. And this truth, of course, is throughout the Bible. You can pick up Romans, read it at home, or John you find it all over the Bible, right? Even in the Old Testament. Pick up Isaiah 53. Read it, right? But we also see it, especially in this passage. We are looking at this morning. Mark 15, verse 6 to 15. Because here what we have is Jesus there suffering condemnation at the hands of the, of the crowd in Jerusalem. He's being, if you like, this is a cancel culture of Jerusalem. And Jesus is being subjected to it. And the key truth we see in these verses we just read, uh, I could summarize the key truth of this passage just in a simple sentence. It's teaching us that the condemnation of Jesus, 
declares us innocent before God. The condemnation of Jesus declares us innocent before God. Let me just unpack this for us to see where that truth comes from. Look with me at verse 6. Now, for those of us that have been following the sermons uh, online, you know that it is Good Friday morning in Jerusalem, right? In the year 33. The Jewish feast of Passover is in full swing. That's what's happening here. Uh, But it's not for Jesus, right? He's currently bound in chains. Now, last night on Thursday, the day we know as uh, Monday Thursday, I guess, or one of those days during Passion Week, right? So on Thursday, on Thursday, last night, the religious leaders arrested Jesus. They put him on trial with fake witnesses and a biased jury. And then they found him guilty of blasphemy. They found him guilty of claiming to be God. They, they found that as a crime for him. He is God, but they found him guilty of that. And now they have brought him, this morning, on Friday morning, right? They have brought Jesus to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Because, of course, they want Pilate to sign off the death penalty. And they want Pilate to use the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, to put Jesus to death. Now, to ensure Pilate agrees, right, the religious leaders have tweaked the charges against Jesus, right? So instead of accusing him of blasphemy, because that's no big thing to the Romans, right? They're just accusing him now of treason against the Romans, of claiming to be a king, the Christ, which they have interpreted as being an earthly king. But the problem is that Pilate has examined Jesus. And he cannot see anything wrong with Jesus. He has not killed anyone. He's not running a gang down the road. He's not running a private army. right? In fact, he's very popular with everyone. And to complicate matters, Pilate's wife had a dream last night. And this morning she told her husband, Pilate, to make sure she he keeps away from Jesus at all costs. So Pilate wants the whole thing to go away. And what he has done is he has tried to persuade the Sanhedrin to give this up by asking them loads of questions. And he has even sent a case to King Herod, right? Who is in Jerusalem at the moment for the Passover. Herod has booked Jesus and done all the bad things to him, but he sent back the boat back into Pilate's court. He also doesn't want anything to do with Jesus, right? Now, while all of this is going on, right? Pilate is stuck with Jesus. While all of this thing is going on, a large crowd has built up outside Pilate's house. And they want him to release one of the prisoners there, any prisoner that is being held there, back to them. You see, at this time in Israel, the Jewish nation is under military occupation by Rome, right? And they long to be free. And some of the Jews have been fighting the Romans, right? And in the process, they have become arrested. So the crowd now wants Pilate to free one of the prisoners, as he tends to do every year on Passover, right? So there the crowd has come, right? And uh, when Pilate hears the request, the crowd says, look, free us someone. So Pilate hears the request, and he thinks to himself quietly, this is it, isn't it? I know what I would do, Right? They want to free a prisoner. I'll give them a choice between the worst criminal I have, Barabbas, and this guy, Jesus. So let's read what happens in verse 6 to verse 
10. Now at the feast, he used to enlist for them one prisoner for whom they had asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Barabbas to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. So Pilate here is letting them make the call, isn't he? Right? And it is a no-brainer, right? On the one hand, we have an incarcerated, notorious rebel and murderer, Barabbas. The worst guy around. And he's not just, the thing you need to remember is that he's not just a murderer of the Romans. He has most likely been killing Jews he thinks are not resisting the Romans enough, like he's doing. He probably regards most of the people in the crowd as traitors, really. And on the other side, so we've got Barabbas there, and on the other side, we've got, there's an innocent man, Jesus of Nazareth. He's a superstar celebrity with a large following. We know that even in the temple, the crowds have followed him there. He was welcomed into Jerusalem in Mark 11 with, you know, palm branches. Pilate is aware of all of this, and the choice is obvious, isn't it? He knows, this is easy. Jesus can go now. But as soon as Pilate's offer lands on the crowd, to his shock, the religious leaders are already one step ahead of him. Let's read on verse 11. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him, that is Pilate, released for them Barabbas instead. So the crowd has gone for Barabbas. So Pilate now has asked to ask about Jesus. Okay, you want Barabbas, right? Okay, so what about Jesus? We read in verse 12. And Pilate again asked to them, said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? Fine, you want Barabbas, you can have him. But what do I do then with Jesus? In a way, Pilate now is, is giving them a bonus. He only tends to release one person. He is a Jewish man. Surely they want the Jews back. Okay, I can give you Jesus on top. But to Pilate's shock and ours as we read this account, the crowd is not only refusing to ask for Jesus, they are demanding for him to die a very horrible death. They could have actually, as Jews, just demanded to stone him. But actually what they are choosing is to have Jesus suffer the most painful punishment. And we read on, don't we, in verse 13 to 14. And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Jesus said to them, Why? Pilate, uh, and Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they all shouted, but they shouted all the more, Crucify, crucify him. Now, at this point, they want Jesus dead. They want Jesus to be crucified, right? And Pilate now has had enough. And Matthew, in his account, adds, at this point, that Pilate literally washes his hands of Jesus. And the crowd accepts responsibility for killing Jesus. In fact, they say, let his blood be on us. But Mark, in his account as usual, is just straight to the point. He simply tells us that Pilate accepts the release of Barabbas and orders Jesus to be tortured and killed. So we read this in verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now, we will look at verse 15 in deep, in greater detail next week. 
A key point I just want to emphasize for you today that we see in verse 15 is that Pilate has handed over an innocent man, Jesus, to die in place of a known criminal. That's what's taking place. In a few moments, Jesus will carry his cross all the way to Golgotha with the help of Simon of Cyrene, and you'll go there at Golgotha and you'll be nailed to the crossbeam between two thieves. Now, it should be Barabbas dying on that cross, but it won't be. It will be Jesus. And this public condemnation of Jesus, of course, is unjust. It is not what Jesus deserves. But here's the key point. It is what Jesus has chosen. It's so important we remember that. This is a choice from Jesus. You see, the crowd and Pilate don't know this, but we know that this person they are condemning is God living among us. Jesus is fully God and fully man. We know Jesus is infinitely morally perfect and infinitely powerful. He can bring this all charade to a stop and frog match them, right? Frog match the crowd to hell. Literally. But Jesus does not do that. And notice, as we go through this account, you notice Jesus is silent. Not a word from him. He's silent. Why? Because here is God allowing creatures he created to shame, condemn, and torture him. And the Bible is confronting us with the question, why is Jesus, our God, doing this? And the answer is the picture we see in Barabbas. Because Jesus is God trading places with Barabbas in order to go to the cross and swap places with you. It should be you dying on that cross. But Jesus has come to die in your place, in my place. You see, the condemnation of Jesus in exchange for the race of Barabbas here is intended as a picture of what is happening to Jesus in general. What will happen to Jesus on the cross there when he dies for us? Because you see, all of us are Barabbas. All of us deserve to be condemned. All of us are spiritual criminals before God. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are under God's wrath and judgment. All of us, mom, dad, husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, young, old, white, black, all of us are under God's judgment. We deserve to be counseled by God forever. And yet here we see God the Son putting on our humanity in order to suffer willingly as one of us in our place, the full condemnation of God instead of us. Because you see, that's what's happening on the cross. God there on the cross in Jesus is taking on himself the punishment we deserve. Suffering for us, the wrath and judgment. For three hours, the earth will be darkened. God's wrath will be poured on Jesus. The wrath you and I deserve in hell forever will be poured on Jesus on the cross. Jesus has taken on this condemnation so that we can go free. So we can go free like Barabbas. Jesus has done this to give you a new spiritual life with God. A life with a clean slate. You know, Barabbas, I'm sure, went off, maybe went down the pub 
if there was no lockdown and he enjoyed himself after he was released. But God in Christ now sets us free to live with God, to live for him. A life with a clean slate that can never be spoiled again by your sin, no matter what. You know, we cannot declare ourselves innocent before God. We cannot escape condemnation for sin by trying to do good things for God. You know, I speak to many people, and they're trying to get their life together, and we get this impression that for us to be loved and welcomed by God, we must do things for God. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says you can never be good enough for God. So God has entered this world and lived a life you couldn't live, died on that cross. That's why there's nothing like the good news of Jesus. There's nothing like it. Book after book, book, read whatever book. You're not going to find anything like it. God himself comes and dies for you on the cross. The only way for God to declare us innocent is by the death of Jesus in our place. As our perfect substitute. In fact, what we're seeing here is a doctrine the Bible calls substitution. God suffered in our place in Jesus for us. Only the death of Jesus can save you from sin. It is the only guarantee of life with God. And what you and I need to do is to accept this death for us by true repenting of sin. I don't mean just accepting intellectually, but true repenting of sin and surrendering our life to Jesus as our Lord and Savior. From that very moment, God declares us innocent. Now, it's important that we, all of us must accept this death for ourselves. You need to get this. As long as the death of Jesus is just God's gift for the world, it will impress you, but it won't save you. It is a sweet thing for you to say Jesus died for the world, but it will do you no good. Unless you genuinely believe that Jesus died for my sins. You must believe Jesus died for me, for my sin. He took my place on the cross. Jesus carried my sins, my rotten vow sins. Jesus felt my shame and was condemned for me. He did it for me. Now, if you generally believe that, then God has declared you from that moment innocent. You have a new life with God. God lives in you, and you spend eternity with him. Listen, you are once in a spiritual prison, headed to the eternal flames of hell, but Jesus has now revoked your sentence with his precious blood. There is now no condemnation for you in Jesus. You are now home with God. God has gathered you into his loving eternal hands to care for you. But if you're not trusting in Jesus like that, then of course you still stand condemned before God forever. And you have no choice, you have no one else to blame, I should say, but yourself. Because the Bible tells us in Romans, doesn't it, that you are without excuse. Because not only have you got the evidence from creation, you have heard the gospel preached to you this morning. But if you have truly repented of sin and are trusting in Jesus, This truth that Jesus declares as innocent is incredible. And I think it is incredible in three important ways. First of all, this truth is incredibly comforting. God has declared you innocent forever and he will never change his mind about you. 
You know, when we see the terrorists uh, or young people in the UK went off to Syria, right? They went off to Syria, they had joined ISIS in, in Raqqa, and they got up to no good, did all these terrorist acts there, right? What happened? The passports were cancelled. That was it. That's it. Passport cancelled. Even if, even if they repent, some of them are fighting it over in courts, but even if they repented, that's it. There's no repentance. Cancelled. You knew what you're doing, right? But God is not like that. Yeah, the passport was cancelled, but with God, if you repent, you'll be back. That's the gospel. God says, if you truly repent and trust in Jesus, in Christ, your justice is satisfied. You can go free. You can live with him. It does not matter what sin you have committed in the past or will commit in the future. If you're trusting in Jesus, you have a clean bill of health forever. Yes, God hates the sins you commit. And yes, your daily sins damage your daily company with God and you must repent of them. They are a heinous thing. They sin against our Father. But the bottom line is this. It is also true that God has forgiven you all those very sins. Past, present, and future. In fact, the reason you need to ask for repentance when you sin against God every day is not because you're not forgiven, because you are forgiven. Listen, in Christ, God is not angry with you anymore. And he never will be. I wonder as you sit here this morning, have you recently stumbled in some sin? Are you finding yourself falling all the time? Are you beginning to doubt the love of Jesus for you? Because you look at your life and you're thinking, I'm just a mess. I have no passion for evangelism. I don't really share the gospel with others. I don't. And I'm constantly addicted to this sin and that sin. I'm trusting in Jesus, but I'm a complete mess. Well, first of all, you should repent. But the bigger picture is this. Fix your eyes on Jesus condemned for you. And this is true even for us. We, sometimes as individuals, we can look back on our lives and we can look, think of mistakes we've made in the past. And, and sometimes when we look back, it can discourage us and it can rob us of joy in Jesus. Beloved, fix your eyes on Jesus condemned for you. There is no sin that you ever commit or will commit that has not already been wiped by the blood of Jesus. God has forgiven you in Christ. God is not holding your sins against you eternally because he has charged them against his son, Jesus, on the cross. Listen, Jesus is not suffering condemnation here just because it's a tick box exercise. He's suffering condemnation for you, beloved, to give you a clean view of earth. And if you're trusting in Jesus, he has given you that. So I find that for me, and I hope for you, incredibly comforting. But I think this truth is also incredibly humbling. You see, as a follower of Jesus, you know no one deserves to be declared innocent by God. You know we all deserve death. You know we deserve to go to hell as much as the people we often condemn and complain about every day. You know we are all by nature children of wrath. You know we are all by nature Barabbases. There is really no difference between you and the West Marxist person around. We're all sinners. The only difference is this between you and them. Is that Jesus, by his grace, has clothed himself with us and our sins. 
and in turn clothed us with himself and his righteousness. And when this truth sinks in, it is humbling, isn't it? Beloved, we cannot fix our minds on the death of Jesus on the cross and live a life full of pride. We belong to God because God has humbled himself by putting on the rags of human flesh and dying a shameful death on the cross for us. Where is the pride in that? For us, there's no pride. You see, this truth, beloved, changes how we relate to people around us. Those people that upset you, it changes that relationship. Because the more we think of Jesus dying for us, the less we are easily offended by others. We can be offended on God's behalf, but the less we are easily offended ourselves. What can other people tell us that we don't already know about ourselves? Someone has called you a bad mother or perhaps a bad father and you're upset with them. But you know, before God, you're only a fraction of what you're meant to be as a parent. Surely you know that. You are a sinner saved by grace and growing in grace. Of course you're a bad parent before God. Of course you are. Someone says you are lazy at work and that has made you stop sleeping at night. But you know you are guilty of worse laziness than that. You are lazy on your knees before God every day. You are lazy evangelizing the world. Of course you are a lazy person. You are spiritually lazy. You know that. You have poured your life into a friend and she's now bad-mouthing you to everyone. And you are going around upset and complaining about this and that. Brothers and sisters, yes, we are heard by our treatment by other human beings. Of course we are. We are human beings. We are not robots. And yet, if you are a believer, you know you don't treat our loving God as he deserves to be treated. You know you are the worst culprit at misusing and abusing God. Do you see, beloved? Oh, friends, I can go on. I mean, we are too quick to be offended and bind to the cancel culture. But as true followers of Jesus, let us allow the gospel to humble us. Let us live by the code of the scriptures, not the code of the street. The world is forever taking offense and this behavior has ended our churches. Always wanting to be victims about this and that. But beloved, a person who lives like that has not yet fully grasped the gospel. Because the gospel humbles us. It humbles us to see our God crucified on the cross in Jesus for our sins. So let us be humble and suffer with Jesus for Jesus. We can only grow in humbleness, of course, if we keep remembering that we have nothing to our name except the precious blood of Jesus. Here is the antidote to humbleness. Here is the antidote to the cancel culture in our society and in the church. Well, the final thing I think this passage does for me is that I find it incredibly motivating. Because you see, God the Son placed his head on the guillotine of the cross to declare us innocent forever. What more, what can be more liberating and motivating than that? 
What, what, what more motivation do you need than the fact that God in Jesus has died for you? Jesus has made you innocent before God forever. That should motivate you, excite you. Jesus has made you innocent means that you can share Jesus without worry. So what if your friends think you're foolish? So what if they cancel you for sharing Jesus? It doesn't matter. You knock on the door, they don't like you. What's the big deal? Jesus has already been cancelled for you. He has already been condemned for you and he has declared you innocent. So what if you make a horrible mess of evangelism? Well, the big picture is that Jesus has succeeded for you. So you're free to fail in Christ. It's not about us. It's about him. So this, I find this incredibly motivating, energizing. You and I have every reason to be excited to live and save Jesus in whatever situation he has placed us in because we belong to him. The Lord Jesus has been condemned in our place. God has declared us innocent forever. We are now citizens of his heavenly kingdom. And it's a joy to be part of his people, the church. Amen.